day, everyone. I'm Seth Nave, and uh, this is the Minnesota CropCast podcast, and I'm your host for today. Uh, we don't have our regular host, David Nikolai, is not in the studio with us today. He's unavailable, so I'm going to try to manage this all by myself. So we'll we'll see how this goes, and I hope you can all stick with us for a half an hour or so uh, with us today. So uh, we've, we're going and doing something just a slightly different than we've done in the last few weeks. We've got a guest uh, that we're really excited about. Uh, we've got um, Kelsey Anderson Onofre is from Kansas State, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about research and extension efforts around Fusarium head blight. Um, Kelsey's joining us uh, through uh, the collaboration with the U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative. Uh, and so it's, this is a familiar topic for many farmers in western Minnesota and academi- academics that work in small grains here at the University of Minnesota and, and USDA ARS, of course. Uh, but for those of you that may not be familiar with the um, U.S. Wheat and Scab uh, Initiative, it's, it funds, it's a collaborative effort uh, with a number of universities and funding sources, um, and it funds over 150 research projects in 30 um, states uh, here in the U.S. And so I probably, I'm not very good at putting the plugs in for things, so I'll get this off the bat at the beginning. Uh, you want, if you want to learn more, uh, be sure to follow up at scabusa.org. So that's S-C-A-B-U-S-A dot O-R-G. So I'll try to get one more plug in for the Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative towards the end. But if, if I forget, uh, be sure and follow up uh, there as as uh, we're talking or or later today. So, with that, uh, you're not here to hear me. You're here to listen to Kelsey. Uh, so I'd like to just uh, introduce you, Kelsey. And and I think what we generally do on this podcast is ask folks uh, to give us a little background. So let's just start there. Where where did you come from? Where did you do your um, your education? Where did you receive your degrees? And then uh, where did you go from there? Yeah, great. Well, thanks for having me here, Seth. It's always always good to be talking about this important disease here. Um, so I'm actually, you know, kind of interestingly from New Jersey. So I grew up on the Jersey Shore, didn't come from a farming background, and I got my um, my bachelor's in biology. So I really kind of fell in love with biology um, at Lafayette College. And I got a little bit lucky there because I started doing some research in a lab that was um, working with Phytophthora infestans, which is the pathogen that causes potato late blight. And I, I just kind of fell in love with plant pathology and that intersection of, of food security and microbiology. And I um, I went to the Ohio State University for my master's uh, degree there. So I worked with Pierce Paul and I actually worked on projects that were funded through the U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative. So this is, that was, you know, maybe a decade ago, but I still feel, um, uh, you know, like this scab, this initiative is really important in, in many ways, not just because of the research it produces immediately, but also because of some of the training it provides for for students and kind of that capacity building across the country. Um, so then I worked actually um, in a soybean breeding program for a company for a little bit before I, I went back to get my PhD at the University of Florida. And there I, I did something a little bit different. I worked on um, some diseases of of tropical crops like cassava and sweet potatoes in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Some of those were 
or through the CG centers like the International Potato Center or the um, Center for International and Tropical Agriculture. So that, so that was a really nice, unique experience. And, um, and from there, I started my position here at Kansas State University. So here I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Plant Pathology, and I'm also a wheat and forages extension specialist. So I have an 80% extension, 20% research appointment here. So a big part of my job is, is getting out on the road and, and talking with, with our stakeholders, with our growers, our wheat growers in the region, um, and, and trying to get kind of the, the latest research information out to them and, and, and kind of responding to immediate problems as they happen on the farm. Yeah, that's great. No, a really interesting background, and uh, um, uh, it sounds like you've you've come well prepared for your position. And and uh, of course, I have a real soft spot for extension specialists, and understand the challenges uh, you have, and um, and uh, to to deliver the good the good word out to producers, and also um, do research to support that uh, effort, and then try to get tenure and do all the things that you need within your department as well. So I, I totally get it and can appreciate that, but maybe not all the audience will appreciate it as much as you and I. So let's, let's talk a little bit. I want to know a little bit more about Kansas and, and wheat production in Kansas. Um, we get a little bit centered up here in Minnesota thinking about our uh, spring wheat crop. Uh, tell us a little bit about the importance of Kansas and, and what the challenges are. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what this year brought. I assume droughty conditions were a little bit tough on your crop there. Oh, sure. So, so yeah, we do get a little Kansas focus here too. So I'll apologize for that in, in advance. We probably, um, I won't talk too much about wheat there in, in Minnesota, but, you know, here in Kansas, we are, um, you know, typically the top producer of wheat in the country, you know, sometimes that's North Dakota, but, but typically Kansas does plant, you know, anywhere between seven and 10 million acres of wheat per year. So it's a, a really big part of life here in Kansas, right? This is the wheat state and um, uh, you see kind of wheat on billboards and things like that. So, you know, I really enjoy working on wheat in Kansas because, you know, it's just so important, uh, important to life here. Um, you know, this year was a tough year though. So we had really high levels of of area abandonment throughout the state. Unfortunately, we had really dry conditions in the fall, right? We have winter wheat. So, you know, most of our wheat was planted, um, maybe even on the early side to try to catch some moisture because we were coming out of a, a, a year of drought, uh, last year too. Right. So we just didn't have a lot of, a lot of, um, of moisture in the soil there. And, and we just had dry cold conditions over the winter. Right. So many parts of the state really suffered heard, um, you know, that was kind of compounded by some, some freeze, some hard freezes in the spring. So we had pretty high levels of area abandonment, you know, area that was, was zeroed out, especially in the Southwest part of the state. Um, you know, there were counties where maybe we lost up to 70% of the wheat crop. So that was a pretty, pretty devastating year. You know, kind of the, the interesting thing on top of that is that things actually picked up moisture wise at the end of the season. So usually uh, that's a little bit different. So things got kind of cool and wet in May, um, which is a little bit unusual for us here 
in Kansas, usually that's when things are, are getting warmer, but they got cool and wet in May. And, and we actually saw some interesting things happen because of that. So we actually got some very late season uh, diseases in kind of the northwest corner of the state, which is a, a big pro wheat producing part of the state. Um, and we also had really high levels of fusarium head blight in that part of the state, which is typically not where we're seeing head blight in Kansas, right? We we kind of have a moisture gradient here in the state. We have higher moisture in the east and we have um, lower moisture as you move west, kind of in gaining elevation across the high plains there. So typically we have most of our corn, you know, corn acres and and fusarium head blight risk in the eastern part of the state. But this year we saw it pretty bad in the western part of the state. They caught some rainfall right around flowering. And as most of you, if you're familiar with fusarium head blight, you know that's just that critical window for this disease to infect and cause problems. Um, and you know, in that part of the state, they just weren't weren't as prepared for it. We tried to put out some messaging, but you know, we weren't as familiar with applying the fungicides. And you know, we had to do some education about the toxins. We can maybe get more into some of that um later down down the road but that was you know something that was interesting and we did have reports of either dockages or rejections from the toxin there in, in that part of the state um so in general you know kind of an interesting year a little bit different than some of the years that we've had here in the past um uh but you know hopefully we're getting into a, a better situation as we move into planting uh this year we just had some rainfall now i know We'll start to, we are running drills in parts of the state already. So we're optimistic that hopefully this next season uh, will be a little better for us here in Kansas. Yeah, it's it sounds like uh, insult to injury when you have, you know, a, kind of a poor crop and dry crop and then you get rains just at the wrong time. It's, I think this is, you know, it seems like farmers just, this is one of the mo biggest frustrations when they just continue to get to continue to get nailed by different factors, and it seems like they just can't uh, get away from it. So, um, yeah, it sounds like a sounds like a pretty tough year. So, what you know, beyond this area in Northwest Kansas this year, what, how important is fusarium head blight for producers, and how how top of mind is that for them as they're as they're managing their crop? Um, and, you know, what are some of the things that they can do uh, to manage the crop? And, uh, you know, from that is that what what are you telling your producers and what what kinds of management suggestions are you giving them? Right. Yeah. So in general, you know, yeah, this year we had that outbreak in northwest Kansas, but it's certainly a bigger problem than that. You know, this this is a disease that, you know, is is probably the top wheat, wheat disease issue throughout the United States. Um, so I think in 2021, they estimated that in the U.S. alone, we lost 18 million bushels um, to, to fusarium head blight or scab, as we call it. Um, you know, so you can just do the math of how many uh, billions of dollars that is in, in economic loss there. Uh, so it's really an important disease, you know, and, and it usually um, one of the problems is it, it can be really sporadic, too. So, you know, it can be a problem in some years when you catch those those rainfall events at those flowering periods, you get the right set of weather conditions, but it's not something that's a problem every year, right? So, you know, in all of the 
the kind of big suite of production decisions that our farmers need to make, you know, they're not always going to bank, at least in, in our region, on spraying a fungicide for that disease. Because in years where you don't have an issue, maybe you'll go two years where you're you're lucky and you don't have that as an issue, you're going to spend your dollars on, on another input or you're going to try to save that that production cost, right? So it is one that's not only uh, a problem, uh, but it, it can be tricky to manage and and um, and predict if it's going to be a problem. You know, the other reason why this is so important, right, is because it not only just causes yield loss and it causes some quality loss, right? It can kind of interfere with the, the proteins um, in bread production, but it also produces a toxin called deoxynovalanol. Sometimes we call that vomit toxin or DON, right? Because it results in vomiting and feed refusal um, and can cause some neurological problems in livestock, right? So this is a big concern. We obviously don't want that in our in our bread, right? Or in our, our finished grain products. So it's something that really needs to be very closely managed. And as I mentioned earlier, our farmers can not only receive those yield dockages, but they can also receive um, dockages at the elevator, right? Which is, you know, kind of a heartbreaking scenario when you pull up with your harvest and you might have reasonable yields and you get some rejection or, or severe discount. You know, we had that happen this year in, in Kansas and, and that happens, you know, throughout the country every year in, in, in parts of, of the, the U.S. So, you know, this one is just just really um, an important one that we have to consider for management. So like I mentioned, right, we have some some management tools and I will say that the U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative is one of the reasons why we have, you know, so many tools in our toolbox for management, right? So that's um, uh, that organization or, or research funding um, uh, consortium is really focused on some of these these management tools, some of these practical solutions for farmers, right? And they've funded lots of projects dealing with development of resistant varieties. So, you know, we have um, many more options in terms of varieties that have a better resistant pack resistance package than maybe we had um, 20 years ago uh, when this disease, you know, really started to become problematic. And also we've, we've looked a lot at how fungicides work and how um, timing those fungicides is really important uh, for managing this disease. So, um, so walk me through recommendations for farmers. Where, where do you start? I assume that a lot of this is, is you know, risk management related and, and uh, I can really appreciate this because of some of the problems, issues that I work on in soybean that, um, uh, those issues that are not guarantees that there is some um, some risk that these will occur get to be greater challenges and I, I um, I'm I guess I'm kind of interested just first what 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 are how do you how do you provide recommendations for farmers is it uh, regional or do you build models in that, that look at weather forecasting and things like that or do you just have a set Set a set of recommendations based on varieties and and uh, fungicides that they should use, um, and maybe walk us through you know what what you recommend, and and then maybe even some of your research and and others uh, that have led to some of that those those recommendations. 
Yeah, so I'd say maybe all of the above is the the right answer, right? So we know we have regions that are at higher risk, at least, you know, if I'm thinking about Kansas. Um, but in general, we're going to be at higher risk if we're no-till, you know, after corn or we're no-till after a wheat crop. You know, one thing about this disease is that the same pathogen infects corn. There's a sister disease in corn called gibberella ear rot, it can cause some stalk rot. So really, if you're in a wheat corn rotation or you have wheat planted near corn, um, you're going to be be at higher risk, right? And, and unfortunately, in a lot of our systems, right, we just can't avoid having some corn nearby, right? There's just a lot of corn uh, in, in most of our, our, our kind of corn belt states here. You know, so those are the, in Kansas, though, you know, we're really thinking about those fields that are near corn or after corn, no-till as some of the higher risk, right? Um, you know, then we have to think about the variety that we have planted. So some of the, the research out of the U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative has shown that, you know, using a variety that's even moderately resistant can decrease your infection by, you know, up to 50%, right? So you can already kind of mitigate some of your risk if you're using um, a variety that's not susceptible, right? So those susceptible acres after corn, they're probably our, our highest risk um, that we're thinking of, you know, but it doesn't provide perfect protection, right? So unfortunately, at least here in Kansas, we don't have any varieties that are fully resistant um, that you can just plant and walk away from and not, not have to worry about scab. Right. So the nice thing that, you know, it's also a U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative product is the wheat forecasting, uh, the FHB forecasting tool. So you can go to wheatscab.psu.edu and you can actually pull up a, a risk map. And this really takes into account, you know, there's some information you can you can adjust, but it really takes into account your variety resistance and then your weather risk. So it pulls in, I think it's relative humidity and temperature, um, you know, in certain key periods before your flowering window. And it will show you um, basically your, your risk of having kind of a severe problem or, or not in that moment. So I know myself and I know crop consultants and and, you know, other um, specialists are really watching that, right, when we start to move into those flowering growth stages or getting close to our flowering growth stages. So we can kind of send out the alert that we are going into these risk periods, these periods where we have high relative humidity, high rain, maybe high rainfall, um, you know, those kind of high risk conditions for infection right around flowering. And then, you know, it's up to us to really sound the alarm there and and start to mobilize um, uh, producers to, to make fungicide applications, right? So I think, I, I'm not sure it works this way in every state, but, you know, we're really putting out those those alerts and, and trying to get that message out when we do see those, those risk windows come through um, in, in the state. And how you know, there are some... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to ask how farmers, um, uh, what's the philosophy of, uh, I'm going to have you generalize across all farmers, which is dangerous, but uh, <laughs> what what's the farmer sentiment around these things? I've seen a shift um, in, in the growers that I've worked with in the past 20 years where there's, um, although we're providing better forecasting and better detailed information about risk management, I feel... Um, there's a movement towards um, prophylactic applications or just at least getting, getting this set up. I think there's, a, there's an economic reason for it. There's a risk management reason for it. There's, 
marketing um, information uh, from companies that promotes this kind of behavior? How how do your farmers respond to um, to these kind of alerts? Uh, do you think that they're you know that they're really helpful in in in, in management? Uh, and I'm sure a lot of this is dependent on cost of those applications and and the efficacy, of course, but. How do you how do you see the farmers reacting to these things and how how well how well are they doing and um, following your uh, suggestions? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I, um, it and it's hard to to answer very precisely, but I think there's been some nice work um, here by some of my colleagues at K State. You know, when we're just thinking about Kansas wheat production, which you know generally is it's a lower yield environment than some parts of the country, right? So we're just dealing with um, with mother nature there a bit, mm-hmm. you know, so our average yields are are lower than, you know, say the Pacific Northwest, other parts of, of the country, right? So we just don't have the yield margins in some cases um, to always make prophylactic applications, right? But I, I think there are some, you know, subset of producers, I, I know for a fact that are maybe I don't know, 15, 20% that are going to go out every year, make that, those prophylactic applications, they might put a fungicide on with their herbicide timing, which is kind of that jointing timing typically here, you know, because they can get in a, a cheap product in the tank um, uh, with some of their other products. They're going to go out with a flag leaf application because, you know, we are also very worried about rusts here in in this part of the country, right? So we're not just worried about scab, right? We do have other foliar diseases that can can be pretty bad in some years, um, you know. And then they'll go in again with the flowering application, and you know, and that that's just the routine, right? But I think there's a pretty big subset in the middle that because you know we're really working with a very tight margin, you know, maybe we're only going to be profitable if we have a forty bushel per acre, you know, crop or or higher, right? So they're they are watching these types of messaging either from University Extension or um, from their crop consultants, right? And, and they are making that decision in, in kind of real time. You know, and a lot of that in this region is, you know, custom application. They don't um, always have have the ground rigs on their farm, especially on, on, you know, smaller operations. So they have to, at some point, make a decision to get on the, the list to have those fungicide sprayed, right, by a, by a plane or, or by a custom applicator. So I think there is a you know, I liked it, and I hope I hope this is true that there is a kind of a middle, movable yep. middle that we can influence, and that are kind of calling me up um, if if they haven't heard any messages, just to kind of gauge that risk um, uh, for some of these diseases, and, and they are kind of making those decisions on the fly. So I think these these tools and and this these kind of outreach efforts do do matter in in that part of the season for us. And and you have a good relationship with uh, crop consultants and those professional agronomists that work for these co-ops and others that that you feel that they are utilizing your information as well because it sounds like in many cases a farmer the last point of contact is going to be through through one of those folks that's going to be making the last kind of recommendations uh, to them so uh, you feel that they're they're uh, responding quite well to your information and your data and your your um, your recommendations? Well, you know, I can't, it's hard to say for sure if everybody's responding to it, but the best way I know is sometimes if I, 
I'm a little late on my recommendations. I, that's when I get the phone calls, right? When we don't put out the information, um, you know, right away, or we, we kind of, you know, go a couple days and we're quiet and we're right in that window. That's when my phone starts to ring. So it's almost when you have the, the absence of information that you start to get get more feedback about it. But, you know, we are doing some, some surveys about those things. We try to, we try to do some, um, try to formalize the way we're, we're kind of getting our extension out. That's always a, um, a hard thing to assess, you know, how people are really using your information and changing their, their decisions. But from the feedback we've gotten, um, I, I do think that we, we can get that information out and it does influence decisions. Good. And what, tell me a little bit about products. Is there quite a bit of variety in active ingredients and combinations of, of fungicides uh, for scab? What, is there, is there a real range in uh, both efficacy and, and price of these products or is there kind of a narrow uh, set of, of recommended products that you've got? Yeah, so there is, you know, so, um, for some diseases, right, like like stripe rust, we have a lot of options. So we can use some of our generic products, and um, we can go on with with several different products. And, and you know, the getting the product on matters a lot more maybe than the the small differences between products for for that type of disease. But for for head scab, that's not the same, right? So we we actually do have a pretty restricted. Um, set of, of fungicides that we can use that we know are effective for, for managing head blight. And, and there are some differences there. So, you know, typically we only recommend um, products that are in that DMI or SDHI, those two modes of action uh, uh, groups of chemistry. So either, you know, something like a a triazole uh, product, um, you know, prothiaconazole, hebuconazole, those azole products, or or this newer class of products called SDHI. So those are are the two um, the types of products that we can use, right? So there's been some pretty good research that has shown that when you use a QOI uh, fungicide like a azoxystrobin or strobilurins, you can actually kind of inflate your toxin levels and, and we don't want to do that, right? So there is a, a pretty strict group of, of products um, that we can use. So, um, and those come, typically can come at a, a slightly higher cost. There is cost difference between those products, but generally the work of the U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative has shown that products like um, uh, Prosaro, Carumba, uh, and ProLine um, are very effective for controlling a head scab. They can result in, you know, 45 to 60 percent control on a susceptible variety and, you know, 70 to 80 percent if you pair them with a moderately resistant variety, right? So you can get pretty close if you kind of marry those two uh, together, Um so, so that's something we've known for a little bit of time that, you know, using those products um, is probably the best choice. There are a few more. I, di- I didn't name them all. Um, and then in the last maybe five years, uh, there have been a few new products that have become available. So one of the nice things about the Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative is we have a, a management um, cooperative, pro- cooperative project um, that basically lets us kind of put out these trials across the country with 
with maybe 20 plus institutions, and we can kind of quickly test how well these new products work in ways that we couldn't we couldn't just do. It would take us many years to do kind of as a single institution, right? So that's that's a really great thing that's come out of this um, initiative. So there's a couple new products like Moravis Ace, um, Spherex, Prosaro Pro, these kind of three new products that are recently labeled for for fusarium head blight control that we've now been able to test over the past um, few years. And, and they they seem to work at least as well as some of those older products. And we have seen some, some slight improvement maybe when you have an, a Moravis ACE application, right? So there are small differences between these these products, um, but generally, you know, we can we can expect that those products are going to work as well as as those those products that have been tested for for maybe a decade now. So, you know, that's something that's really good that's come out of some of this recent research because those are the products that are actually being promoted right now that are probably um, you're probably most likely to to be able to you know purchase at at this point. So it. Sounds like you kind of got this thing beat. I don't know. Is there anything more to do? What's what's what are you working on now? What's next? What are the what are the big what is the big challenge that's uh, that's facing you or what are what are the upcoming challenges do you think uh, that that you need to work on or you are working on now? Well, yeah, that's a good a good question. So, you know, I would love to say we do have it beat and that every year we can um, expect there there aren't yield losses, but unfortunately, you know, we're not there yet. So none of these products are perfect. So the big, the big challenge, kind of the, the elephant in the room, I think is, is that you, you don't always get them on in time, right? So these products have really short uh, windows when they are most effective. And it's kind of right at that early flowering period, right when you start to see the yellow anthers um, kind of uh, popping out there in the field. And, you know, it's all very easy for us to say as, you know, academics, oh yeah, go out at early flowering. And I had someone call me and say, Kelsey, I could be camping next to the field and I would miss early flowering, right? Because, you know, it can move really fast, especially if we have high temperatures, right? You can move through that flowering growth stage extremely quickly, right? So, um, as if you're if you're getting on your fungicides early, or maybe you're getting on, on them on a bit late, you know you can lose some of your efficacy. Um, I would say the good thing is we know that you can still have some benefit, right? So there's been some nice research that has shown that you can still have some benefit if you get them on, you know, maybe up to a week late, or you have them on in that heading period. Um, but we just we don't exactly know how that translates across, um, you know, across temperatures and, and especially in, in, in areas where we, we do move really quickly through these growth stages. You know, the other big challenge is if you don't get your fungicide on by kind of the end of flowering or when you're kind of almost at your very completely full growth stage, um, you hit your your pre-harvest interval, right? So it's illegal to apply according to the label anymore, right? So you're, you're sometimes we're realizing we're in risk. And by the time we can actually get the, the plane, um, you know, we're on our, on the list, we're actually off label, right? So we, we, we do have some challenges, you know, I think ahead of us just to make sure we can, we can refine that timing, refine our recommendations, um, you know, fungicides that have uh, better 
you know, that can be applied for longer periods would be, you know, wonderful. That could last a little bit longer. You could get on at heading and, and be okay. That would be great. Of course, improved resistance, right? It'd be perfect if we had those sil silver bullet varieties and where we didn't have to apply fungicides, you know, that that's a really hard task that I know a lot of my colleagues are working really hard on uh, in the U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative, but I think there's there's still some work to do there. So um, I, I think, you know, both on just how we manage with fungicides and also, you know, how we manage um, with resistance, I think there's, there's still some big challenges out there for us. How about... Um disease resistance or virulence around some of these, um, some of the fungicides. So I'm thinking about resistance management type work. Clearly, um, you know, you're in a heavy, you work in a heavy wheat area, but like you said, there's areas where you've got a lot of corn and in those better environments, there's farmers that are probably spraying uh, their corn with, with fungicides and similar active ingredients and, and, you know, now multiple multiple actives in individual products. And so uh, do you, um, are you concerned about resistance management and, and the IPM side of this? Is that, is that on the, is that on the, um, the screen for you guys as you're, as you're thinking about uh, managing for scab? Oh, for sure. That's a big um, concern, right? And, and one of the reasons why, you know, there's many reasons why economic, but also uh, these types of resistance issues that you're talking about, why we wouldn't want to spray fungicides every year, for example, just, you know, prophylactically, right? Because there has been some work um, in New York and other states that have documented that, you know, some of the isolates of, of this pathogen that we have are a little less sensitive to some of the products we've been using for a long time, like tebuconazole, metconazole. Those are big ingredients in the products, Crosaro and, and Corumba that I mentioned, right? Um, so, so I think, you know, it's really important that we're monitoring that. And I know there is a big, pretty big effort that, you know, we're, we're a part of here with the U.S. Wheat and Barley Scab Initiative to screen, you know, isolates on a larger scale so we can really monitor that situation as it unfolds, right? You don't want to get in the situation where you're fungicides aren't working and, and you don't know why, right? We want to be able to monitor that. And I think that that's another reason why having some of these products that now have uh, DMI and an SDHI mode of action um, uh, are on the market are, are really important, right? So just some kind of preliminary work that's come out of this SCAB initiative has shown that um, you know, a lot of the isolates that have been screened are pretty sensitive to some of these newer SDHI products. So I think that's that's a really good tool that we have in the toolbox, but we do have to be mindful of it. And, and it needs to be yeah, part of the conversation as we're thinking about, um, you know, integrated management of this disease. Well, it's been great. I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, I've learned a lot. And I hope some of our listeners have learned some things as well. So anything else that you'd like to mention? What, what else is going on there? Is there any other topics that we haven't haven't uh, brought up here that we should discuss briefly? Oh, no, I think we covered a lot of ground there. I, I would say, you know, there's just a lot of information too. If you're curious about, you know, digging into some of the details that we talked about, a lot of that is summarized nicely there on um, 
scabusa.org. The SCAB initiative has done a really nice job pulling all that together so you don't have to do the legwork of, of kind of finding each of those individual reports. So I'd say that that's a good place to start if you wanted to kind of dig into the, the nitty gritty of some of this um, information. And of course, your local extension personnel too will, will be able to point you in the right direction. That's great. We've um, I work with some larger collaborative groups, and we've really tried to model some of our efforts after uh, the SCAB initiative. And I think there's um, yeah, the the initiative was one of the really early leaders in this area of working across institutes institutes and and interdisciplinary work. So uh, it's not easy. Uh, there's a lot of political and funding challenges when doing things like that. And and um, but it's you know the farmers. Farmers don't care where the information comes from. They, they just want the right information and, and to how, to, how to best manage their crop. So, again, thank you very much. And thank you, Kelsey, for, for joining us today. It's been, it's been great. So I'm going to close Thanks out. Yeah, I'm going to close out uh, here for today and just thank everybody for joining us on um, the Minnesota uh, CropCast today. And we'll be back again next week. And so one more thank you to Kelsey, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks.